Welcome to everyone. Welcome to the new year, the new decade. These are definitely exciting times. Okay, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into the message. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you're a good and great God, that your character never changes, that you're always true, and we can lean upon that. And that is also true of your word, that it's perfect, it never changes. And so, God, let us grasp more deeply this morning just your character, your nature, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the next few months, uh, 13 weeks, we're going to be going through a series which we've entitled The Gospel According to the Minor Prophets. And this morning, I want to give us an introduction, and then starting next week, we're going to dive in uh, to these texts. And these are the um, questions I want to answer for us this morning as we get into just the background to help frame what's going to be shared. We're going to look at where do we find the minor prophets in the Bible? Uh, what's the time frame of these books? Why are they called the minor prophets? Uh, what is the role of a prophet? Who are the prophet's audience? What form do their messages take? Where do prophets get their authority? And how do the prophets connect to the gospel? So with regard to our first question, where do we uh, find the minor prophets in the Bible if you still use a paperback version, which I hope you do, besides your digital Bible, uh, you can see that the Scriptures is divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes when you open up your Bible, you look at this whole list, you go, it's just a soup in my head. And so where do we find uh, the minor prophets? They are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So you can't forget it. From this point on, you're always going to know where it is. You don't have to just open up your Bible and hope you land on the right book that the preacher is talking about, you will know that they are located right here, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Now, where are the major prophets? They're the ones that come right before it. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And by the way, Lamentations is not a prophet. That is a personal journal of Jeremiah himself. So there's a, a fifth book that's represented among uh, the four, uh, four major prophets. But the, the 12 minor prophets we're going to look at in the back half of the Old Testament. So when you look at the table of contents, you tend to think in your mind, okay, this is all in sequential order. As I'm reading through these books, it's just the timeline. But actually that's not the case because in the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament ends here. And so what happens is that when we get into the prophets, we circle back and we hear the commentary of the prophets of what's going on during that time. So we have this timeline here, and it starts with Saul, who was the very first king of Israel. Prior to that, the nation was ruled by judges, but the people wanted a king, just like all the other nations around them. So God heard their request and gave them the first king, Saul. And after Saul, David succeeded him. And after David, his son Solomon succeeded him. Now, as we know, Solomon was very wise, but he made one big mistake in his life, and that he's, he allowed his heart to go astray he ended up actually worshiping other foreign gods, and God disciplined him and said, because of that, I'm going to split the nation into two categories. So when we remember from the book of Joshua, there were 12 tribes that came into the promised land. That represented the entire nation, the entire identity of the Jewish people. But when Solomon committed his sin, God said, I'm going to split you into two nations. The first is going to be the 10 tribes of Israel. They're going to represent the northern kingdom. 
the two tribes of the 12 that are left are going to be Judah and Benjamin, and they're going to be the southern kingdom. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, you hear Israel or you hear Judah, it's really important for you to remember that these are divided by the Lord and that there was two separate timelines that was going on. So there was two parallel kingships that was happening, those that ruled Israel in the north and those that ruled Judah in the south. Now, at the end of the day, God sent Assyria to come and dominate and to conquer Israel, and they were taken away to Assyria, and after that point, they no longer existed. They were completely assimilated. The ten tribes of Israel, if you've heard this phrase, were lost. They were completely absorbed into the Assyrian identity, and they no longer continue on. This also happened with Judah, except they were taken into captivity by Babylon. And so God said, after 70 years, after I take you away, I'm going to bring you back. So this is what we refer to as the exile. So again, in the Old Testament, when you hear the exile, it's important for you to remember this very important time reference. Pre-exile is before the nation was taken into Babylon. Post is when they were brought back 70 years after that. Now, how did the minor prophets come in? You see their names in red. God sent them as his servants to speak to the nation and to the leaders at those various times to reveal what God's mind and God's heart was. So this gives us a layout of where the minor prophets fit in with regard to the history, with regard to the leadership, and how it's organized in the Bible. Now, why do we call them the minor prophets? This is not a chemistry class, but it does look like the periodic chart of elements. And this was actually, when I first saw this, I thought this is genius. Number one, because I'm a scientist. But number two, uh, they took this and took the, the organization of the Bible and put it into this beautiful, beautiful chart. So on the left side, we've got the Old Testament. On the right side, we've got the New Testament. We're not going to talk about this side. But these books are listed in exact order as is your table of contents. And as you can see, it's color-coded. So this color coding helps us to see very clearly the organization of the Old Testament. The first five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy represents the Torah or the Pentateuch. That's the beginning of civilization. That's where God describes for us how it all began. And then we have in the orange here the history of Israel as they began to relate to God. Then we have the wisdom literature in the yellow from Job to Song of Solomon's. And then we have the prophetic literature. So this is part of the genre. We've got the major prophets, and we've got the minor prophets in the blue, 12 of them. Now, are they the minor prophets because of the JV team? No. They're the minor prophets because the material that they left for us is shorter. It's more condensed. The major prophets gave us uh, a much larger body of work. But when the Bible came together and these were compiled, the, the chapters that you read sometimes are only one chapter long. Um, but it's called minor only because the material is shorter. But their stature before God and their stature in front of the nation was no less important than the major prophets. So let's ask the question, what is the role of a prophet? And as we know, the prophets loom large in the Old Testament. What was it that they were called to do? What is their purpose? What is their job description? Why did God give them to us? Well, a definition of a prophet is one who speaks for God and interprets his will to man. One who speaks for God and interprets God's will to man. So the prophet reveals the heart of God, the mind of God, his counsel, his perspective, 
his values, his truth, how he sees things. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, prophets are skilled in keen observation of human behavior, cultural trends, political climate, social norms, and religious activity. Their purview is far and it's wide. They have the eyes of an eagle, and they can see very broadly and very deeply. That's why their language is just breathtaking. Even English departments, universities will read the Bible just because the prose is so powerful, just purely as a standalone piece of literature. But the prophets were inspired, and their language was soaring and deep and poetic and, of course, convicting. They saw as God saw, and they spoke as God spoke. Now, regarding the speaking aspect, we know that the prophet's primary channel for conveying God's will was through the medium of speaking. And there are two categories of prophetic speaking, foretelling or future telling and forth telling or truth telling. Now typically the prophets are most known for their foretelling powers, predicting future events and having crazy accuracy. As we're going to see in the first prophetic book we're going to study next week, Hosea names the country that will overtake Israel. He's predicting global events with great accuracy. Isaiah predicted that there would be a virgin birth hundreds of years before it actually happened. I mean, can you imagine the courage that it took for him to say, there's going to be a woman that will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and it will be a virgin birth. What a crazy prophecy, and yet he was speaking of the coming Messiah. Obadiah predicted the extinction of Edom. Maybe you've never even heard of Obadiah. Maybe you've never even heard of Edom. These are some of the things that we're going to learn. But Obadiah the prophet prophesied that there would be a nation that would become extinct. Elisha could hear orders that the generals from the other side were giving. It's spectacular, crazy, supernatural stuff that we're going to be hearing and reading about. But the bulk of prophetic ministry is actually around forth-telling or truth-telling. And as such, the, the burden of a prophet's forth-telling is focused on calling the people of God back to God. To return to him, to give up their wayward lifestyle, to forsake their idols. And the responsibility and the burden of a prophet is, is not a popular responsibility. You're always swimming against the stream. You're always pushing up against the hill because the cultural pressure is always going one direction and the prophet is speaking in another direction. So it's not an easy assignment that God gave to these very sturdy and hardy individuals. But prophets are imminently concerned with people maintaining their covenant status with God. We just partook of communion this morning. That's of our covenant status with God in heaven. God eternal, God who created the heavens and the earth, he has covenanted with us. This is not just a ritual. It's a signal of our everlasting commitment with him. And so the prophets, that's their concern, is to stir people and move them back to that covenantal relationship. Much like a pastor or marriage counselor is concerned with couples keeping their vows one to another. This is one of the most important things we must remember when reading the prophets. They're calling people back to be faithful in their covenant to God. Even prophets today, they have that same burden. When a pastor gives a challenging message, he is standing in the role of a prophet calling the people's hearts back to him. 
When a pastor calls the people to read and be faithful to the Bible, he is standing in the role of a prophet and calling people back to him and their covenant responsibility. This idea of covenant is huge. You know, we, we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, but those are actually words also for Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I'm sorry, Old Testament and New Testament, these are words also for the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Well, what is the Old Covenant? The commandments and laws which Moses gave to the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 20. So for the first, very first time, God reveals his heart and mind. This is how a nation should be governed. This is how a nation should operate. Here are the moral principles and the foundation of a nation. And so I'm giving them to you. And the Jewish people responded and said, yes, they cut covenant. They entered into it and they became God's people on the earth. So the Old Testament really is a story of one nation and the relationship to Jehovah or God. The New Covenant. What is the New Covenant? Well, the New Covenant was enacted when Jesus died on the cross, rose again to eternal life, and left us his word to follow. Hence, we are called New Covenant Christians. It's new in the sense that it supersedes and replaces the Old Covenant. But the foundation of the New Covenant comes from the Old Covenant, which Jesus affirmed in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was speaking to that opposition that was out there saying, oh, Jesus is this new popular teacher. and He's going to do away with our traditions. He's going to do away with our laws. But Jesus calmed their house and says, no, I'm here not to abolish them in any way, but to fulfill them down to the smallest letter. In fact, heaven and earth will not pass away. They will not, uh, it will not disappear until all of these laws will be accomplished. So just as Jesus studied the Old Covenant, so we must enhance our study over the next few weeks on the Minor Prophets. So who did the prophets speak to? What was their audience? There are three primar primary audiences. One was to the kings or the leadership of the nation. Think about Nathan speaking to David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Secondly, they spoke to the people, to the nation itself. And it's very interesting. We're going to see the different geographical places from which the prophets prophesied. Some of them were located in Jerusalem. Some of them were located in rural towns. And yet God gave them such a voice and such an authority that the whole nation heard them. So the prophets would speak to the people of the land. And then there were times where God would inspire them to speak to other countries that were outside the boundaries of Israel. We'll also be hearing about that. And as such, when they delivered their messages, it took on two different forms. They would speak God's message to the present situation, or they would speak God's message concerning the future. For example, as Israel was wayward and, and falling away from God, the prophets would speak to the cultural dynamics. He would speak to their behavior. He would speak in very practical ways, not in esoteric, conceptual ways. He would speak to the businessmen that were using false balances in the market so that they could enrich themselves. He would speak to the legal system, to the judges who would favor the rich and wealthy, who had the money to hire the legal protection. He would speak to the crime rates and the high murder rates that were occurring in the cities and the violence. 
or would speak about the lack of justice to the poor or the greedy wives that would drive their husbands to make more money so they could just sit in the lap of luxury. The prophetic eye was very keen and very wide, speaking to the present situation that they were in. And of course, God would also use them to speak to things concerning future, future events. What would happen to the nation? Who will, be, who will they be judged by? How will the judgment come? Speak to them at the practical level. They were agrarian society. Would the cross be good? Would pestilence come? Would they have bounty? Would, they, would their hearts be glad by the new wine that they would bring in? Would Israel be humiliated or lifted up? These are all big, heavy themes that have huge implications. And so we ask, okay, where does the prophet get the authority to speak for God? Obviously, they have to be called. We can't be self-appointed prophets. Some of you have been in the body of Christ for many years, and you've seen conferences or churches where people just proclaim themselves to be a prophet. It's like, who are you? The calling has to come from the Spirit of God. There has to be a true anointing and a true authorship by God. But more importantly, that authority comes through intimacy and friendship with God. Prophets are called friends of God. So we see that Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation, he was called a prophet and a friend of God. In Exodus 33, Moses, in speaking of Moses, the scripture says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now when the nation of Israel saw Moses and when he went to his personal tent, the Bible says a cloud would descend and that's where God would speak to him face to face. Can you imagine the, the jealousy that they had? Like, oh my goodness, he gets to speak to God. I wish I could speak to God. But you know, that picture was a foretelling of what was to come in the new covenant that every single one of us can speak to God face to face and he wants us to be a friend. That's why Jesus said, you shall no longer be a slave, but you shall be a friend. And friendship is the foundation of prophetic ministry. Did you know that God likes friendship? Did you know that God wants friends? Do you know why we like friends and we want friends? Because friendship is in the heart of God. God is social. He wants to tell his secrets to someone. He doesn't want it just to be bottled up. That's the reason why we have good friends. We can cry on their shoulders. We can let our hair down. We can tell them whatever is on our heart. And there's that safety and there's that comfort and there's that joy. That impulse comes from God himself because God is a God of friendship. 1 Kings chapter 17, the Bible says that Elijah stood before the king and announced, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Elijah was face up towards God. He could hear, he could sense, he received the burden of God and therefore he could go before the king. The anointing was on him. The revelation was on him. And in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Scripture says here, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servant, the prophets. There are times when I'm in my quiet time and God says some things to me, and I go, Lord, why would you share this with me? He said, just because you're my friend. I just want to tell you. 
You don't have to do anything with it. You mean God would actually talk to us that way? Absolutely. We shouldn't just come to the Lord with a prayer list, pray through them, plow through them, get done, finish my quiet time, check off the list and say, okay, I did my spiritual duty. Our quiet time is to cultivate that relationship with God. Ultimately, the pictures that we see in the Old Testament is that God wants a prophetic people. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2 and filled the whole church like it did the prophets, that was a new dispensation in which you and I get to be part of a prophetic company. We get to experience things that the Old Testament saints longed to experience. So we're living in extremely privileged time. Because of their closeness to God, they understood God's default, which is what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. When the first couple sinned, they lost the innate sense of God's unconditional love, kindness, mercy. They lost consciousness of his default and fell into the serpent's trap, which is Satan's never-changing agenda to obscure and distort God's love from you and me. In some ways, we can summarize our Christian journey by saying it's all about understanding God's love more and more deeply. I've been walking with God for over 40 years. I'm still stunned by the love of God. He continues to heal me. He continues to speak to me. Like, Lord, I, I thought I touched bottom. No, there is no bottom. The love of God is like the expanse of the ocean. And forever and ever and ever, we will never exhaust the revelation of God. When we go to heaven to be with him for eternity, we'll never say, oh, it's done. Boy, this feels like my marriage to my wife. It gets a little stale. That's a joke. <laughs> the love will continue to pulsate and be strong because the love of God never ends. That's the default that was in the garden. But Adam and Eve lost it, and therefore they hid themselves behind fig leaves. And by the way, the only time that Jesus cursed something in the New Testament was what? When he cursed the fig tree. That was a message back to the garden. The fig leaves is a picture of our own effort to cover ourselves up, to somehow be good enough to God. And God says, you don't need to do that. I will forgive you. And so when he saw that fig, leaf, as in G fig tree as in Jesus, he said, no, that is not how you go about your relationship to me. Cursed be this tree. And then Jesus himself would later be cursed on the tree to replace that fig tree. The prophets understand God's default, that it's restoration, forgiveness, redemption, mercy. And we're going to read a lot of tough messages from the minor prophets. How many people have read the minor prophets? Okay, I encourage you to start diving into it. Again, you know where it is in your Bible now. You know how it all fits in. But as tough as the message of the prophets are, they almost always end in hope and mercy triumph, triumphing over judgment. If you're a little scared about reading the prophets, okay, start at the back. Read the end of the story first so you know how it ends. And then go back to the beginning. But it's so important that we embrace the progression of how God speaks this is how we get back to God's default. To get to the mercy and the forgiveness, there must be repentance in light of the truth. Judgment must be trumpeted for the heart 
to turn. It's important to understand that prophets in actuality are shepherds. They are spiritual parents from God. They love us, they care for us, sacrifice for us. They guide us, and as we know, part of what parents must do is they have to discipline us. One of the things that we will learn practically from the prophets as parents is how to be good parents to our kids. But the key to the discipline part is that love is behind it all. Love is what is behind all the tough language. If we have love, we, never be af- we need not ever be afraid to discipline our children. And God never calls a prophet to speak without love. If you do, you get in trouble. Can anyone think of a prophet that didn't have love in his heart and he got in trouble? The answer is Jonah. He did not like the Ninevites. And he fell, in, fell into a very difficult situation. So contrary to the popular image of prophets being angry and grouchy, they're actually deeply loving people. Yes, they did get angry, but it was born, that anger was born of affection and heartbreak. Just like a parent getting in our face if we harm ourselves or engage in destructive activity. If you were to ask me, Pastor Rich, if you were to ask my kids, they would tell you that I was firm with them and at times tough with them in a good and situation-appropriate way. I disciplined them in proportion to their crime. They had the fear of dad in them. Not a wrong kind of fear that I didn't love them, but that there would be consequences if they acted like brats, if they lied, if they stole, if they hit, if they used wrong words with people or were disrespectful or selfish, had bad attitudes. It would incur dad's anger. But the key to that discipline was that it was married to a deep, abiding love. My kids can tell you many times where they were little, while I was correcting them with a sharp rap to their little butts, I would say, do you think I like doing this? If we do our work up front as parents with our children, it will save you so much heartache. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates their children. But the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Prophets employ the rod because they represent God's Father's heart. What did Elisha say about Elijah when he saw him taken up by the chariots of God to heaven? Oh, my mentor, my teacher, you're gone. That's not what Elisha said. Elisha said, my father, my father. That was the relationship that he had. He was losing his spiritual dad. The very last prophetic book that we're going to study, Malachi, the last verse in the last book of the Bible, talks about restoring the father's heart to this generation. Prophets have a father's heart. Probably the reason why there's, the number one reason why there's, Difficulties in society and the number one weakness of parents today is that they're not properly exercising discipline. But God will not spare the rod with his children and he will not go weak on them. Discipline rendered proportionate to misbehavior is a sign of true love. If you see a kid that's wild and out of control, the first thing you say is, where's the parents? 
right? The parents have the responsibility to raise up a child that's going to be healthy, contributing to society in a good way. Discipline is so important to who we are as individuals. Hebrews 12 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. That's true. Later on, however, and that's the key. There's the reason why we as parents don't like to employ this kind of discipline because, oh, we just can't stand that squeamish moment when there's pain and we see it in our kids. But we have to use wisdom because later on, down the road, it's going to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I can't tell you how many times I've had to hold my little kids while they were crying and comfort them after I disciplined them. But it produces a harvest of righteousness later on. The issue is there's so much lack of what proper discipline looks like that many parents in this generation can't even think about going there. They think it's abuse. They think it's overkill. They think it's some old-fashioned technique. Or they think that they're going to lose their children as friends. First of all, you don't start out your relationship with your children as friends. They will become friends, but that's not where you begin. I'll tell you why disciplining is so effective and applicable and contemporary. Because our sin nature is the same today as it was yesterday and forever. We have not evolved one shade better from the garden. As progressive as we look and as much technology as we have and as great as we smell and look, we have not progressed one shade from the garden. We are as sinful and rebellious as ever. Thus the charge to employ the rod is a refreshing instruction for us and useful as ever. But let's pray that we get a good picture of what that looks like or redeem the experiences we've gone through that were excessive. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Again, remember that discipline is always a means to an end, which is going back to God's default of love and restoration and acceptance. He doesn't discipline us in order to make us acceptable to him. He already loves us. Remember the prodigal son? Let him go sow his wild oats, but he loved him already. He disciplines us because we are his children. That's the mark of his fatherhood over us. So when we hear the fierce words of the prophets, we need it to land full force on us because it's God's love landing full force on us. I've said this before, but I'll repeat myself again. I'm glad God doesn't let me get away with my sin. I'm glad God won't give in to my temper tantrums. I'm glad that God keeps me on a short leash because it's his protection over my life. I can't protect myself. Left to myself, I would live in raucous sin all the days of my life. And why not? If there's no boundaries, who is there to live for but myself? I would commit myself to just being the smartest criminal alive, hoard as much money as I could so I can spend it on my flesh. But God sends us his servant prophets to lift us out of our misery because that's what sin is. It's misery. Now the Bible is clear. There is, there's pleasure in sin. Make no doubt about that. Feels good. Comforts us. Does things for us that just make our problems go away. 
But in the end, the pleasure of sin is like the bite of an adder. There's nothing but poison in the end. And prophets come to call us to repentance and fill us with wisdom so that we can live in joy and peace and happiness. So this is the picture of what prophets do, their heart, who they are, what motivates them, and their responsibility before God. They call people back to their covenant faith. So the last question we ask, we've called this series The Gospel According to the Minor Prophets, is how do the prophets point to the good news of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Peter wrote in his first chapter, of this salvation, the prophets, the very ones that we're going to study, have inquired and searched carefully. They're very diligent, very accurate, very precise. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, me and you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So let me highlight a few things here and then we're going to close. Number one, verse 11, part B, tells us the prophets prophesied by the Spirit of Christ who was in them. Their prophetic ministry came directly from Jesus' spirit. Jesus was their inspiration. Jesus is the chief prophet. And their ministry came downstream from his. Jesus is the fountainhead. He's the most powerful truth teller to ever live. Thus, when the prophets spoke, they spoke in his tradition of truth telling. Blunt and clear. The words of the prophets are Jesus' words. The thoughts of the prophets are Jesus' thoughts. The pain of the prophets are Jesus' pain. The action of the prophets are Jesus' action. So the 12 profiles that we're going to cover paint a powerful picture of Jesus himself since they were moved by his very spirit. Then in verse 11c, it says that the prophets foresaw the suffering of Christ. They were future-telling. They prophesied it. They could see Calvary suffering. They saw Jesus on the cross. They saw the new covenant coming. All the sin that they would prophesy in the cities to the nation, Jesus would be himself the ultimate sacrifice for it all. Jesus would pay with his own life. And this is the love of a prophet. They don't just trumpet the message, they live it. And then verse 10 tells us that it all ends in grace. As committed as the prophets were to the law and commandments of Moses, yet they realized that there was something better on the way. We can look at these prophetic figures and we think, man, they're just so intense. And they're so, you know, just passionate. And they don't seem very pastoral. And they're so committed to the law of Moses. But the Bible says they prophesied of the grace that was to come. Grace was coming. Grace would be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace wouldn't just be a construct. It would be a person. Grace isn't about trying harder and harder. You are already accepted in the Lord. The favor of God is already on you. If God be for you, who can be against you? These are things that we need to preach to ourselves over and over. God already loves me. God already accepts me. Grace is not about earning God's love or acceptance. 
Grace is about receiving that spirit and to be filled with that spirit of assurance. Jesus is a spirit of assurance, not a spirit of condemnation. That's why Romans 8 says, therefore there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is so bold in Romans to say, the law is gone. The law is gone in the new covenant. (coughs) Where was the Ten Commandments in the garden? There was no Ten Commandments. When Adam and Eve walked the earth, there was no chiseled stones with the Ten Commandments on them. It was an atmosphere and lifestyle where there was no law. They lived in grace before they fell. In Jesus, we are transported back to that place where there is no more law. Pastor Rich, you are preaching heresy. It's almost like heresy. But it's not because now the Spirit is within our hearts and the law naturally will be carried out as we follow and abide in Him. The age of grace was coming. That's what the prophets were trumpeting. And it's all about Jesus. As you saw in the manger scene during Christmas, the question is, Is there room for Christ in the end, in your life? Or will you be like the wayward Israelites that constantly kept God out and chased after everything under the sun but God? And for what? So what if you inherit the riches of the world but lose your soul? What if you become the king of Amazon or the king of Microsoft, become the world's richest billionaire in history? I don't know where the spiritual relationship is with God. My salvation is priceless. I would never sell it for $100 billion. Would you sell your salvation for $100 billion if someone offered that to you? There's no price that can be put on your soul. No amount of money can save your soul. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus Christ can save your soul and my soul. And that's the invitation of the prophets is to surrender to God. Get back to him. Be touched by the warmth of who he is. Open your heart to him. Make room for him in the end. That's the most prophetic thing you will ever do in your life. Hands down, nothing beats it. So as we study the minor prophets, it's going to help us get a 2020 vision of an incredible God who is deeply passionate about our good. And next week, the first book we're going to look at is Hosea and it's a barn burner because God tells the prophet to marry a prostitute. Literally go out and marry a harlot. Heartbreaking story. Did God actually do that? But that's how the story begins. If you want to get a jump on it, please read Hosea this next coming week and you'll be able to follow along with me even more closely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your servant, the prophets. We thank you for their message. We thank you for their heart. We thank you for what you do, God, to stir your bride, to stir your church, to get back and to be close to you once again. Lord, we know that there is a thrill beyond what we can think or imagine when we just return to you. Like the prodigal son who realized he had an incredible blessing And when he came back to it, he was even more amazed at the love that the Father had for him. Lord, we pray as we go through this series that you would convict us, you would touch us.
you would speak to us, you would help us to grow and be a strong and vibrant, healthy church filled with joy and filled with your spirit. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.